Well, good morning uh, once again. My name is Levi Pancake. I serve as one of the elders, pastors here, and uh, we're going to continue our series through the gospel according to Mark. Our passage this morning is Mark chapter 13, verse 14 and following. That's Mark 13, verse 14 and following. If you're using the uh, Pew Bible, that's page 849. That's 849. Again, it's Mark chapter 13, verse 14 and following through the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days." And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heaven will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also... When you see these things taking place, you know that He is near, at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can gather as your people this morning and declare who you are and what you've accomplished in Jesus Christ. Now, as we open the Word together and consider these truths, I pray that you would incline our hearts, open our eyes, give us understanding 
satisfy us with your word and with your promises. We entrust this time to you now, Lord. And it's in Christ's name that we pray together. Amen. For about five years when I was in high school and college, this is in uh, Naples, Florida, southwest Florida, um, I worked for a Christian television company, and I had a number of uh, jobs at the Christian uh, TV station. I um, worked in the call center. I was a quality control specialist. I was an on-air personality. That was my favorite title. And I was a control room operator throughout those, those five years. Now, um, how I got the job was um, my youth pastor had told one of the vice presidents of the company my name. And she said that I had a great name for television. And little did she know, I also had a great face for television as well. Am I right? Amen? No? And, um, and so, um, had the interview, uh, apparently hit that out of the park, or maybe my, my name was just a in, but then I got this job where I was um, interviewing Christian artists, bands, Christian thought leaders, pastors, etc. I mean, basically, I was attempting to be like the Christian TV version of Ryan Seacrest. That's what was going on. And, um, and that was an interesting job, but the best job that I had while I was a college student was the control room operator. So what I would do, it'd be an eight-hour shift, and I was responsible for monitoring uh, 25-plus channels. And I was directly responsible for loading and queuing up three of their channels. And one summer between my sophomore year of college and junior year, um, I got the job of working uh, the night shift, midnight to 8 a.m. as the control room operator. So, um, I would pack up, you know, three Mountain Dews, candy, popcorn, some Stouffer's frozen lasagnas, you know, all that stuff so to make it through this eight-hour shift. And, and it was great because um, anytime I worked an eight-hour shift, I mean, uh, all I had to do was take these VHS tapes and put them in the machine, and, and VHS tapes. I mean, this is early 2000s, back when, when Blockbuster was doing just fine, one on every corner. I mean, that age. And I'd, I'd put them in there, and then I'd queue it up on the screen. And so, I only had to work like five minutes an hour tops. So the other 55 minutes, I could study, I could read, I could think deep thoughts that a 17 to 22-year-old thinks. I mean, all that kind of stuff. So the midnight shift, I had all kinds of time on my hand. And so uh, the first couple hours, it was great. I was alert, I was ready to go, and um, I was studying, reading, all this kind of stuff. The next two hours were a bit more difficult. So that's when I would chug um, the Mountain Dews and all that stuff. By the the third set of hours, 4 a.m. to 6 a.m., it was absolutely brutal just brutal. Uh, you, you have all these TVs on, and you have uh, these fans cooling the equipment, and you had optimal room temperature. And so, I'm doing everything I can to just stay awake during that time. And then the last couple hours, you know, I got the second wind, and I was, I was okay and ready to go. But, but seriously, the, the only job I had other than five minutes an hour, which was pretty mindless, was to stay awake when I was working that midnight shift. Stay awake. That's it. Stay awake. Those are the last two words of Mark chapter 13. They're the last two words of our passage this morning. Stay awake. 
And in many ways, that, that encapsulates what Jesus is trying to urge and communicate to His disciples and to His followers and to His people today. God's people are called to stay awake. Last week, um, Jordan Stinziano uh, taught on the first 13 verses of Mark chapter 13. And he said that Jesus, in looking at Mark 13, he's more concerned about who the disciples are and, and how they uh, remain stable and steadfast, rather so much as to, to when all these events will occur. If you remember, at the beginning of Mark 13, Jesus is uh, leaving the temple, and the disciples say, look at what wonderful buildings, what wonderful architecture. And, you know, Jesus, like a true Debbie Downer, uh, simply says to them, well, not one stone is going to be left unturned. You know, they're all going to come tumbling down. They're going to be destroyed. So then Jesus and disciples go to the Mount of Olives, and then James and Andrew, Peter and John, well, they ask Him, well, well, when will these things happen? What will be the sign that these things are about to be accomplished? When will we know that the stones and the rocks and the, the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem is about to occur? And then Jesus goes on to explain, again, not so much about the timing, but who His disciples are to be, what type of disciples they are to be in the midst of it all. He, he paraphrased, paraphrased James Edwards that Mark 13 is less about future events and more about Christ's people and their present trust in Him and their discipleship. This is a passage that communicates primarily the type of followers of Christ we are to be in the midst of all the things that Jesus describes. Now, I say that because Mark 13, the entire chapter, is one of the most difficult passages in Mark, in the entire New Testament, to interpret. Mark 13 is, is complex. It's complicated because of the nature of prophetic language, the, the nature of, a, of apocalyptic literature, you know, multiple fulfillments culminating in one final fulfillment. And so, it's easy to get lost in all of that. Now, for Mark 13, there are, there's many different interpretations of it, but um, particularly the section that we're looking at, there are three uh, most common ways to interpret this passage. One, the events and the things that Jesus is describing in Mark 13 pertain to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70. It happened all that time ago. That's what Jesus is talking about. The entire chapter, that's what He's talking about. There's another view that says the entire chapter is about Christ's return and the end of days, and it's, it's primarily futuristic, something that we haven't yet seen as well, or maybe we've seen bits and pieces of it, or maybe we're living in it. You know, there's a few different threads there. A third interpretation is that, you know, it's the, the compromise interpretation. It's a little bit of both. Jesus at times is referencing the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in A.D. 70, and at other times, He's talking about um, His return when Christ will come back, the end of days, the, the last days. And um, there are godly men and women 
who hold to any one of those camps and then some. And it's important for us to remember, I mean, because of this, um, this morning, I mean, we could, we could take weeks and dissect this. You know, we could do a whole sermon series on last things and end things and prophetic literature. Uh, Bernie uh, taught a class um, that, uh, on biblical theology. I mean, they spent hours going through Mark 13. That's not necessarily the aim in this sermon series. We're trudging along through Mark, and I have about 30 minutes to tackle all these verses. So, I'm going to probably stay a little higher up here. I'm not going to get into the weeds of all of that. When I do briefly, I intend to come to some cautious conclusions, some, some dotted line conclusions. And what I mean by dotted line is I'm not going to draw these hard lines that we're going to break fellowship if, if we don't hold to one of these camps. And, and I think this is instructive for all of us. Um, there are some who focus so much on the second coming of Christ, almost to the exclusion of so many other passages in the Scriptures. Uh, they, they obsess over things, uh, passages like this one, um, and, and they construct detailed and calculated and often speculative scenarios, and then um, basically say, if you don't toe the line and agree with me, you're out. You're not in our camp. And they basically try to evangelize in the sense of getting everyone to adopt their view of the end of days. And such a posture like that is not wise. And so what I do want to be this morning crystal clear and firm on is the application for Christ's people today. One, God calls His people to stay awake or to be on guard. There's a high level of alertness there. Secondly, we can be confident, we can be assured of this, that Christ will indeed return, and He will return triumphantly to judge in righteousness and to, to use the language of this passage, to gather his elect. So while we walk through this passage, we're going to look at three things. Uh, the tribulation, the beginning of the end. We're going to see secondly, the return, the coming of the Son of Man and glory and power. Thirdly, the timing. These two very quick parables at the end of our passage. One dealing with a parable of a fig tree, another a parable of a man going on a journey. So let's look at verse 14. First of all, the tribulation, the beginning of the end. Verse 14 says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, the abomination of desolation, many ways that represents the answer to the disciples' question in, this, in verse 4. What will be the sign? When will these things be accomplished? And in many ways, Jesus is saying, when you see the abomination of desolation. Now, it's hard to think of another phrase in the Bible that has created so much controversy, debate, and disagreement throughout church history. The term, abomination of desolation, it originates in the Old Testament book of Daniel. 
chapter 9, also seen in chapter 11. In that, Daniel is uh, prophesying, and he's describing a coming figure who would desecrate the temple of God and abolish daily sacrifices there. It meant, in Daniel's context, uh, an abomination so detestable that the people of God would have to flee. They, They would have to get out of the temple, thus leaving the temple in desolation or leaving the temple desolate, abomination of desolation. Now, Daniel's prophecy from chapters 9 and 11, this happened in 167 B.C. Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes comes in, and he invades Jerusalem, and he desecrates the temple. He outlaws sacrifice. He stops circumcision. He uh, actually makes a brothel um, in some of the temple chambers. He erects a statue of Zeus and himself in the temple, and God's people have to flee the temple. And it's only when God's people revolt and then reclaim the temple that all of that stuff ends. If you've heard of the book of 1 Maccabees, 1 Maccabees talks about that situation that happened in 167 B.C. But that's Daniel's reference. What about Jesus' reference? Well, that's a little more complex and confusing. As I mentioned earlier, there's a few, well, there's several interpretations of it, but some of the most common are, one, that the abomination of desolation refers to something that happened in A.D. 70, somewhere in the series of events that led to the Roman army invading Jerusalem, destroying the temple, and all of that. That was General Titus who eventually um, stood in the temple when all of that destruction took place. The other view says that the abomination of desolation is some future event. It's it's going to happen, and it's going to happen at the end of days, and um, some uh, little stream of that connects the abomination of desolation to this quote-unquote man of lawlessness that Paul talks about in Second Thessalonians. Now, those are two of the, the predominant views, and then there's just a ton of tributaries and all that stuff in between. Again, it can get very complex and, and confusing. Once again, godly men and women adhere to both of those and other interpretations of it. So, what, what would be my conclusion, our conclusion? Well, I, I think it, it may be helpful to, to come up with a, with a dotted line. I, I, think, I think both arguments are persuasive, honestly. And to me, one of the more compelling ones is uh, the abomination of desolation relating to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. But it's very difficult to discount uh, the futuristic interpretation as well. And that's why it's really important to remember throughout this discourse the Olivet Discourse, Mark 13, because Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, the Olivet Discourse, um, that, that the destruction of the temple and the last days, the end of the age, um, they are related. Many would say the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 is a, is a foreshadowing of what's to come. It's a prototype of what's going to happen. It's a, it's a precursor of some of the difficulties that God's people will suffer and the world will suffer in um, the last days or in the church age. This is important to remember both of these events as we're considering it. Regardless of the interpretation, it's not going to be pretty. Verse 15, let the one who was on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. 
Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. I mean, Jesus is describing for these four disciples what it's going to look like to flee Jerusalem. That's a compelling case to make it so that uh, to, to reaffirm the interpretation that he's talking about Jerusalem in AD 70. And he's saying there's going to be urgency. I mean, it's going to get so bad, so quick, that you don't have time to grab the basic necessities. Just run. Get out of Dodge and head to the mountains. Not only does the fleeing have to be quick and sudden, and there's a preparedness that goes with that, but additionally, it is going to be very, very difficult. Jesus goes on, and alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. That's verses 17 and 18. You, you see that there's going to be extreme hardship. I've been told that being pregnant is not that easy all the time. Imagine having to flee to the mountains while pregnant. That's even more difficult. I've heard that nursing an infant is not always that easy. I don't know from experience. I've just been told this. And that would be difficult to do while fleeing Judea into the mountains. Winter complicates things. For some of you from a, from a, say, a more mature generation, you understand that. We've all heard the stories. You've walked to school, uphill, 10 miles each way in the winter, covered in three feet of snow. We've heard those stories. Those journeys are not difficult or are difficult. They're hard. Jesus says, pray that it may not happen in winter. That would only complicate things. It was going to be very, very difficult. Verse 19, for in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. Now, that verse makes a compelling case that this is futuristic because he's describing uh, there's been this tribulation, this difficulty. The world has never seen will, and will never see such hardship. Some say there's a switch happening. If he was talking about Jerusalem in AD 70, now he's making a switch to more futuristic type of things. Others would say, no, he's still talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and he's using hyperbolic language. The siege warfare in Jerusalem it was very, very difficult, as any siege warfare was. The historian Josephus, he's a Jewish historian, um, he wrote that when Jerusalem was being invaded by the Roman army, um, there were uh, infants and children and moms and elderly that were just dying on rooftops and in the streets starving and famine and robberies and, and homicides. Either way, it's, it's, it's gruesome. It's painful and it's difficult. Then verse 20 says, and if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now here we see just once again God's, God's grace and his mercy. Regardless of if it happened in AD 70 or if it's happening in the future, we see that God is always mindful of his Use the language here, his elect, whom he's chosen, his children. God is mindful of the people of God, and he intervenes, and he shortens it to spare some of the pain 
and the hardship. If you're in the Jerusalem camp, AD 70, you'd say that siege could have lasted for years, decades. It was only a few years, and he shortened it. Futuristic camp, there's hope there that however bad it gets, the Lord will intervene. In the midst of it, there's also false promises of deliverance and salvation. Verse 21, and then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there He is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Remember, Jesus is saying that, that, that His disciples are to be ready. They're ready to go. They're not thrown by the hardship of this. And part of being ready is the ability to discern truth from error. So in the midst of all of that, there are going to be false promises of salvation, false promises of comfort, false promises of deliverance. Jesus says, don't get caught up into that. In fact, He says, some of them will will do some pretty amazing things. He calls it signs and wonders. And that could easily lead astray, once again, the language here, the elect, His chosen ones, His people. How does He conclude that section? Verse 23, but be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But be on guard. That's an imperative. That's a a command. Jesus doesn't want His followers to be thrown by all of this stuff. He doesn't want His followers to be thrown by hardship. He doesn't want His followers to be tempted to follow false promises of salvation, comfort, and deliverance. He doesn't want His followers to get caught up in all of the hysteria. And there's a word for us today in this. One word you could use to summarize our culture is hysteria. Just the alerts that you get on your phone, scroll Facebook, Twitter, read any headline, it's hysteria. And in the midst of it all, there's false promises of deliverance, there's false comforts, there's false promises of hopes, and there's people telling us from left and right, up and down, destruction and doom are impending. We've heard the last three years, the most important election ever in the United States in U.S. history, 2016, until it was 2018, and now 2020 is the most important election we're ever going to have. In some sense, I understand what they're saying, but the way that it's hyped and the hysteria associated with it. Just yesterday, just scrolling through some of my news feed, I mean, we saw that um, President, uh, the, the dictator of North Korea meeting with uh, the Chinese leader. And in the midst of that, in some of the subtext, it was, you know, North Korea's pursuing nuclear weapons and trade war with China. While that was going on, apparently the Iranians shot down a drone of ours. And then President Trump was about to respond, military strike, but then he called it off. And and while that's going on, the next one is, are the Russians really going to meddle in our election soon? Again, can we do anything to stop it? Hysteria. Those are headlines. I'm not denying that those things are happening. But we as God's people are called to remain stable 
and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. The Lord does not want us to be tossed to and fro. Every wave of doctrine, by every circumstance we find ourselves in. But He wants us to be on guard. Our Lord holds every nation, every president, every prime minister, every dictator, every star, every planet, the sun and the moon in His hand. And He can put an end to it. He can stop it. He can call us home whenever He sees fit in His infinite, holy, and good purposes. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you, the Lord says. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. People of God, be on guard and remain stable and steadfast. Secondly, the return, the coming of the Son of Man in glory and power. Verse 24, but in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now, these next verses do appear to allude to um, the, the end times, some eschatological vision. Esch, big word alert, eschatology comes from two, weak word, uh, two Greek words. It means last and study. It's the study of last things or end times. And it's a, it's a picture here that, that seems to be linking um, some of the events that may have happened in the first century to the return of Christ. As one commentator said, for Mark, the events, that's the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, the return of Christ, they're intimately associated. And it is unlikely that he saw a great gap of time between them. They're intimately associated in that they are part of of the same divine act of history. This includes Jesus' coming, ministry, death, and resurrection, which bring the kingdom of God, the divine judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70, and the return of the Son of Man, which brings history to its conclusion and goal. Now, that's one of the interpretive options, this, this two-dimensional uh, approach. Um, it's often compared to... Um, like if you looked at, at mountains that um, appear close together from, from, a, from a great distance, but when you approach them and get closer to them, you realize that they're miles apart. It's the understanding that from Mark's perspective, what happened in Jerusalem in A.D. 70 was direct vindication of God's saving work through the life, death, resurrection of Christ, and, and that would serve as a precursor, as a, as a preview, as a foreshadowing 
of what will happen when Christ returns. Now, this will come up again a few verses later where where Jesus says with absolute certainty that the Son of Man will return, and yet basically says, I don't know when. The Son of Man doesn't know. Only the Father knows. You see some of those things at play. Now, when Jesus says that the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, the powers in the heavens will be shaken, that's, that's typical apocalyptic Jewish imagery that is meant to communicate something cosmic and earth-shattering is occurring. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. That phrase, Son of Man, that is Jesus' favorite self-designated title in the gospel according to Mark. Fourteen times He uses it. It comes from Daniel chapter 7 where someone like a son of man appears before the ancient of days. That's God Himself. And the ancient of days uh, gives the Son of Man authority, glory, and sovereign power. You get this picture here of, of that Son of Man. He comes humbly, Mark 10 says, to serve, give His life as a ransom for many that same Son of Man will come and judge the earth, will come, it says, and send out His angels to gather His elect, His people, His children, from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Think of Revelation 5, what Nate and and we read this morning, where people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people group will be gathered who claim Christ from the ends of the earth, and they converge at one single point, Jesus. So all the things in our culture, uh, all the identity politics, the things that we try to find our primary identity in, Jesus says, no, if you're my people, I'm your focal point and I'm your primary identity. People from every ethnicity, people from every race, people from various educational backgrounds, um, differing political affiliations, differing socioeconomic statuses, different backgrounds, different jobs, different careers, different vocations all come together, and Jesus gathers them all. He sends out the angels to gather them all, and they're all gathered at the primary focus point under the banner of Jesus. Jesus is the focal point of divine redemption. Jesus, say it again, is the focal point of divine redemption. And we, use the language here, the elect, we as His people share fellowship with one another because Jesus is the focal point of divine redemption. Now, it's also important to note in our passage what this passage doesn't affirm. There's no mention in Mark 13 of a millennium. No new Jerusalem, no rebuilt temple, no restoration of Israel or the state of Israel, no battle of Armageddon, no hints as to how, 
when Christ will return. All of these things this text is silent on. I'm not saying the study of those things are unimportant. They are important. They should be studied. I say that because I don't want us to miss the forest and the trees. What's being emphasized, what's being highlighted, what's primarily being communicated is that Jesus Christ will return. Jesus Christ will gather His elect. We know this is a blessed hope and assurance that Christ will return. We know that He will claim His own. His coming is His promise. Last, the timing. Two brief little parables. First, the parable of the fig tree. Verse 28, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that He is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. The, the parable, the image here is pretty clear. The fig tree in Palestine is one of the few trees that uh, loses leaves in the fall and then uh, buds again in the spring. The image being, uh, when you start to see the fig tree budding some leaves, you know that summer is near. And then Jesus compares that to, to when you see some of these things, you know that it's about to happen. Things are about to go down. Once again, is Jesus talking here about the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70? Is Jesus talking here about some futuristic uh, event? There's godly men and women who believe both. It appears as if more, more of the majority think that in this small section, regardless of how you interpret the entire chapter, this small section appears to allude to the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 because of this phrase, this generation will not pass away. The thinking that the, the generation of Peter, James, Andrew, and John, that generation would have lived to see the destruction of, of the temple in Jerusalem. However, there's, there's other arguments that could say he's primarily talking futuristic. Now, I think it's important once again to note here, from Mark's perspective, we're talking about these things and all of this stuff wrapped into one another. From God's perspective… The redemption of sinners like you and I is part of one divine act. It's kind of all put together. The incarnation, the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, Christ's return, all of that, certainly there's, there's different aspects to it, there may be different phases to it, but it's all part of one divine act. All facets of one major event. Once again, think of the mountain range and the mountain. I recognize as I'm presenting some of these views and others that some of you may hold, there may be a sense of disappointment as to I'm not getting into it, I'm not drawing charts and all that type of stuff. Well, it's a similar type of disappointment that I'm sure Peter, James, Andrew, and John felt when Jesus says uh, this next line, but concerning that day or that hour… No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. 
Those who knew I was teaching on this passage were teasing me this morning, saying, is one of my application points where I'm going to give you a date when Christ returns? No, I'm not. Maybe 2037? No, I'm not going to give you a date. I don't know. No one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Again, as as Jesus is presenting this, I also think it's helpful to remember this, what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, where he says that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. I mean, it could be like that from God's perspective. Like all these things happen like that. But from our perspective, it's been 2,000 years. But for every generation of Christians that has gone before us and has gone after us, There is a sense of hopeful anticipation, living in light of the fact that Christ can return at any moment, and no one knows when. He continues, verse 33, we've heard this before, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. Here's the other parable, the last parable. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all. There's these last two words that I mentioned earlier. Stay awake. Jesus paints a scenario of a master leaving, putting his servants in charge. Um, and that's why I do think it's clear that, that this section is referring to the coming of Christ. Though, again, there are others that, that disagree with that. Godly men and women who do. But this, this absence of a, of a master is gone and he will return. And then he singles out the doorkeeper. The doorkeeper had one job. Stay awake. A constant vigilance. And then when he describes, you know, in the evening or at midnight when the rooster crows in the morning, those were, uh, it was a Roman watch's breakdown of of four different shifts, four different three-hour shifts. Uh, You had um, the earlier shift, evening, 6 to 9 p.m., or at midnight to 9 p.m. to midnight, or when the rooster crows, midnight to 3 a.m., or in the morning, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. You always have to be on guard. You always have to be on watch. And in this parable, the doorkeeper is expected to keep watch all four sections. And there's an application for us that says the Christian disciple, the follower of Christ, we're never off duty. You know, I've had a hard week this week, so I'm going to take a, a weekend off. I'm just going to let myself go. As a Christian, we don't do that. We're, we're always on duty. And in this sense, what he's talking about in this passage, we're always on du- duty of, of a high level of alertness, readiness, confident expectation, being on guard, staying awake that at any moment Christ will return. Why do we have to think that way? Lest He come suddenly and find you asleep. Disciples are doorkeepers, and we're called to stay awake. The last verse, and what I say to you, saying to his disciples, I say to all, that's us, 
Stay awake. We as Christ followers, we're called to watchfulness, faithfulness, perseverance. What does staying awake look like? doesn't mean that you can't sleep your eight hours. What it means is that we allow our light to shine before men. We um, live to glorify God, equipping others to live faithful lives of worship, presenting every man, woman, and child with repeated opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's being salt and light. It's, it's living in such a way with our actions and sharing with our words and demonstrating with our attitudes that we indeed worship the one true King. As I mentioned, I want to be firm and clear with the application. I've already said it. We're called to be on guard. We're called to stay awake. Though the time is unknown, Christ's return will be bodily and it will be visible. So we're to stay awake. And we can trust that when He returns, He will return to judge in righteousness and to gather His elect. When He comes, He will deliver people from suffering. He will rescue them from wrath. He will bring reward to those of us who have persevered. And it will be accompanied by a a resurrection of those who have fallen asleep before us in Christ into glorified, imperishable bodies and will initiate the permanent dwelling of Christ with His people. He'll wipe away every tear from every eye. I don't know, I mean, I know what some of you are going through, just just the everyday challenges and hardships that come with life. Some of you that have parents who are ill, trying to rest in Christ and have a confident expectation that He will write all of this someday. There's some of you that have children who are wayward. We can rest in the Lord in that and pray for our children. Uh, we were in our, our small group, uh, missional community, a couple weeks ago. We were talking with a dear family who are members here, and they're getting ready to relocate to Montana. And so we're, we're excited for this new job that they have, and at the same time, uh, sad that they're that they're leaving. And, and the husband, Matt, then says to me, well, if you're ever in the area, you know, you can come and visit. Like, who's ever in the area of Montana? <laughs> well, Yellowstone's close by. Like, I hate camping. I'll never be in Montana. Oh, I don't know. Maybe I'll end up in Montana at some point. And certainly, if I do, if I'm within, you know, he said, if you're just a few hundred miles away, that's like being next door. It's like, you get it. Montana's really big, big sky country. But in my mind, without sounding too myopic, it's like, but we will spend eternity with them. I'll see them again. As sad as it is when people move to Montana, no matter how good the opportunity is. But this is part of our hope. When Christ triumphantly returns, we can rest assured that we will be united with our loved ones, friends, and family members who are in Christ. It'll do away with the pain and suffering that has come from the fall. For those who have not trusted in Christ, for those who are not part of the elect, for those who are not His children and not turned to Christ for the forgiveness of sins, I implore you, I plead with you, you don't want to be on the other side of this terrifying thought of Christ's 
return when he will judge the living and the dead. Turn to Jesus this morning. And for the rest of us, let's rejoice and have hope in the one who has accomplished our salvation and who will one day return. Let's pray together. Father, this is certainly a complicated and complex text. I pray in the midst of it that we can rest assured that you will return and that we can stay awake. I pray now that you would give us strength and faithful endurance. We love you. In your son's name that we pray. Amen.